the actions of what they did and the outcomes that they got from that is where all the language is. So I don't feel like mm -hmm. people have, are lazy. I don't f think people are used to digging so deep. This is why the interviews, most people say, oh, I did my job interview in 15, 20 minutes. I'm like, yeah, you missed it all. Because usually none mm -hmm. of that real causal mechanisms come out. A little bit comes out, but by the end, you need to connect all the dots. And I think that's why they're 45 minutes to an hour, because at some point you've got to be able to connect. This happened and this happened and this happened that made them ready to buy this thing. And then they also had this and this outcome because that's what they were hoping for because they couldn't do it. And they had these anxieties like this is like when you talk about to somebody about them making a change, it's a big deal for them. There's no such thing as a little change. Welcome to the seed stage. I'm your host, Enzo, CEO at June. Every week, June and Point9 invite the most inspiring product and growth leaders to share their practical advice on how to grow your SaaS. Whether this is a story behind a feature, a marketing framework, or a risky update made on the pricing, we're digging ideas you and your team can put in place next week. No fuzz, no BS. Enjoy the show. Hi, Bob, and welcome to the podcast. Hey, Enzo. Nice, nice to be here. Thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. It's been really inspiring to read some of your content and, you know, work with some of your frameworks. And so I'm super happy that we bring that to the world today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I, was, it, okay. it's, I, I don't think I planned to, to plan to, I never, uh, I'll say, had a plan to do that. It just kind of evolved over time. And so just me wanting to build all the time is, is how these methods and tools kind of come out. Beautiful. And we're going to touch on that in a, in a couple of seconds. But before cool. we start, I just want to give a quick introduction about you. So yeah. for some people that probably haven't heard about you, you're basically, today we're going to dive into innovation and entrepreneurship yep. with uh, you. You're a serial entrepreneur, you're an innovator, you're renowned for your expertise in job to be done that you mm -hmm. help to co-create. And I think of you as a, a mix of a business mind that meets anthropologist. Yeah. And you're probably one of the best person to delve into the human behaviors to decode what them make them, you know, stick and and love products basically. Okay. You have a patient for unraveling customers' motivations. You have uh, become a trailblazer in fostering the job to be done mindset, reshaping how business approach innovations and marketing too across very diverse industries. Yeah. You're currently the co-founder of the Rewired Group. Yeah. And you started eight companies where you also served as the CEO or president. Yeah. And today you're mostly aiding companies of all sizes to uncover their yep. hidden insights yep. and crafting some successful product and services. I don't focus on any of that. I just focus on building. Like that's my, that's at my very, very core. And so it's one of those things where I'm 60. So like by the time you're 60, you'll have a lot of things behind you too. So it only gets longer because you've done things like, uh, but it's really, I think about it as, I'm at an age where it's now about passing it on and passing it forward. And, and like I had some really great mentors who taught me and helped me kind of, uh, I'll say, grind and, and learn and, and really push me to, to, to get to another level. And I feel like I'm now responsible to take that kind of role and help people do that. So that's why I like to do these kind of podcasts. And for people who haven't heard of me, it's, it's just about, in, in most cases, it's just about learning how to think from other people's perspectives. The other part is then there's methods and tools to help you do these kinds of things. Like most people think an, an innovator or an entrepreneur is born, and I believe that they're made, and they're made basically through through the 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 the, the rigors that they're put through, and that the, and the and the standards that they have. When you have high standards and you can't succeed in one place, you find a new place to innovate to basically go live your standards. 
Yeah. So, yeah, that's <laughs> and, and that's something also we're gonna we're gonna touch on in a couple of seconds. Mentors, yeah. your patient for giving back. I mean, you're clearly like a very humble person, I think, uh, and uh, and that's just the point you just made is like clearly highlighted that. Yeah. And but yeah, I, you definitely see yourself as a, as a creator, as an innovator, as, as just yeah. someone figuring things out. And you also touch on your on your willingness to to give back, which yeah. I think is is really amazing. But you're definitely definitely putting some effort there because you you wrote some books too, right? Which yes. uh, takes a decent well, amount I, of effort. I have right? help me write books. Like this is one of those things where I realized, like I. I really got sick of just explaining to people over and over the same thing. And so I wrote, I, I have the, had a couple of people help me write a book to get my thoughts out. And so when you look at the book, they just interviewed me for each chapter. We are, we are organizing what it was. And then they just took that transcript and turned it into a manuscript. And so they, they did a fabulous job. But like when you read it, it's like you hear me speaking because that's what I did. <laughs> and, and that's the best way, I think, to, to, to consume content and to, to, to share, right? The, yeah, the, the, so. the, the, Greeks, the Greeks were doing like that, right? Aristotle and so on. They were yeah. just walking with their, yeah, with their mentor, with their mentors and they're just like students, I guess. And that's how they yeah, used to. So to I've been, I've been, I've been reflecting on my mentors for a while. And I realized like, you don't know, I, I would say in the moment, I don't know who my mentors were. It's only in reflection. Can I actually articulate who my mentors are? Do you know what I mean? I, I right. think it's actually like, like people ask me, like, will you be my mentor? And I'm like, I don't, I don't really know what that means. And I've been working on kind of a, a like a, almost like a contract to say like, here's how it's got to be structured because like, what's the difference between a coach and a mentor? And, and you start to realize like, for me, I worked for all my mentors. I worked for them. Like they, they paid me or they paid me through some salary and I did something for them. And, but I learned so much more from them. And so that was kind of the whole aspect of, and, and at the end, I was there pushing them as well. And I think that's the, the unique aspect of having, building a relationship and like, why would Dr. Taguchi, who was almost my, a little older than me at the time, literally spend the time to get up at five in the morning and meet me for breakfast and walk through equations. Like I just, I, and, and I, the only thing I can think of is he was just sitting there going like, finally, somebody who wants to really take this on. Right, because everybody else was being pushed to learn it, but I was being, I was pulling to learn it, and I think that's that's really what happened. And what do you, what do you think that person? Uh, so we're gonna, so that person, uh, for those who don't know, Genichi, Genichi Taguchi, yeah, Genichi right? Taguchi, I mean, yeah, yeah. So he's one of your mentor. You've been very loud about about him. Uh, yes. For those who don't know him, he was an engineer, a statistician. Yes. Yeah. Also worked with a lot. So what, yeah. what do you think he was taking time with you and, and with you? So, Have you so he, Taguchi was actually very, uh, he studied, basically, he, I think he studied until middle school, and then he learned everything else in a very systematic way, basically reading. And he learned, he learned R.A. Fisher's methods and tools, um, which is design of experiments. And then he started to apply it as he studied engineering. And so ultimately, he could walk in and say, I don't know what the best thing is, but I can figure it out using designed experiments. And so he was one of the very first ones where at Nippon Telephone and Telegraph, they, they, they end up making uh, relay switches for telephones and Westinghouse made the same thing. And it turns out like the ones from coming from Japan were higher quality and lower cost and they couldn't figure out why. And ultimately it came down to Taguchi's method being able to find these parameters that allowed you to actually uh, reduce costs and in improve quality. And so he, he was uh, embedded into the Toyota production system. He was a boy embedded into like all the industries inside it. And, you know, he won the Deming Prize in Japan three times himself personally for just his thinking around kind of what is quality and how do we think about quality?
So what was maybe one of the main learning you had from him? Because oh. I saw one quote, uh, I think I think you mentioned somewhere that he was also great at figuring out how to solve problems once and for all. Because typically when you solve yes. a problem, you create new ones. Yes. And it sounds like he was the one to be able to teach you a way to yeah, really solve so, a problem. So I found myself having to learn, go and learn, you know, some Zen practices and some foundations in Zen because he would always talk in kind of riddles. And at the same time, he would always have a sense of duality. So if if there's a problem where something is when it's too thick, like paint, uh, it runs. And when it's too thin, we get orange peel. He would say that ultimately we have a problem of variation. And he could find variation all the time where I would see and solve one problem, but then go create another problem. And so he learned how to find the right level in which to look at problems and to see systems so you could solve it once and for all. And so he's a very unique uh, approach to thinking about systems and working on systems. And I'm in the midst of kind of working on that as kind of my, one of my next topics is uh, uh, prototyping to learn and systems thinking. That's a fascinating topic. Do you have an example of a problem that uh, maybe you solve with him or like that you solve later with this killing uh, uh, approach? So what, what, yeah, one of the problems, so to be honest, I was, I was still in college and I got assigned a problem at Ford um, around the rework in the paint area, which was basically for the Lincoln Continental. And they had about $120 million worth of re uh, uh, rework a year in the, in the spot where when they'd paint a car and it didn't come out perfect or the paint wasn't thick enough or thin enough, they'd end up having to resand it and repaint it. And so ultimately it was, how do we actually just get paint on in a, in a more uh, uniform way? And it's vertical, horizontal, like how do we actually optimize it for that? And I went in and um, I just listened through to Dr. Taguchi's method in terms of like, what are the parameters? What are the control factors? What are the things we can change? Which is like the spin of the, of the bell that spreads the paint, the, the charge on the paint and the charge on the body and the, you know, what's positive, what's negative. We had all these different parameters we could play with. And ultimately no one, everybody had a theory of how it worked, but nobody knew how it really worked. And so I always say that the greatest gift I ever got was being dyslexic because at some point I realized like, I can't take anybody's word for it. I got to actually empirically see it. And so one weekend I went off and we ended up painting uh, 18 different vehicles over the weekend at very different parameters of thickness and temperature and updraft and like all these different variables. But it was almost like, you know, 2,500 combination possibilities. We did a special 18 and by Monday morning I had a solution. And so I walked in and they literally kind of, because everybody's there was PhD in robotics, a PhD in chemistry, a PhD in metal, metallurgy, like every, all the experts were in the room and I'm like, okay, I think we need to do this. And they just kind of laughed at me and they said, all right, well, can we just try it? And finally they tried it. And it, 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 it cut rework down by almost $70 million. And it turns out one of the biggest parameters we changed that they didn't think was going to make a difference made a huge difference, which was the polarity of the, of the, of the uh, paint in terms of whether you usually grounded the car and positively charged the paint. We did the opposite. And to be honest, it worked better. We don't know why, but we do know that it worked better and it worked better more consistently. And ultimately, it created new theories. Dr. Taguchi says all new theories come from anomalies. And so we need to actually, as technical people, we need to actually find the anomalies because that's where actually all the real action is. Right. Okay. So you touch on two things. Uh, I want to I uh, continue on. The, fir the first thing is 
engineering could engineering explain afterward what, what why it worked the approach you took I think or I, the science ended up telling us science ended up telling us how it worked they were able to build a theory that basically worked around it i think engineering's job is is a it, we're a combination of a scientist economist and an anthropologist right or or you know somebody who understands about people and so ultimately we have to manage the trade-offs between all of those things but what we need to know is make sure that it works consistently but we don't need to actually explain the phenomenon over and over again that's a scientist's job a scientist actually has to define the phenomenon and define the phenomenon but they usually don't have to do anything with the phenomenon right very different right yes and so just for people to to come out from this uh, from this uh, example with uh, with a learning Yes. Do you think it's faster to fail and to learn or, uh, you know, try to iterate and learn from like practices than to trying to rationalize? So, is it, so is it kind the, of the learning? Yeah. The first thing I will tell you is I think everybody learns differently. And so it really depends on you and how you learn. I can't learn through written word. I think a lot of people can learn a lot of things through written word, but I think the other thing is they assume truth. And what I, you know, Taguchi would say something along the lines of there's way more unknown than there is known and never forget it. And so to me, mm -hmm. like I'll, I'll hear people say things, but then I'm like, okay, what's the, what's the experiment I have to test to prove to me that this is what, what is really happening? Or how do I let the system itself tell me how it works as opposed to trying to let theory tell me how it works? And so it's one of the reasons why right. I think Clay and I were such good uh, partners in, or, you know, in terms of building things is that I was very practical and Clay was very, Clay was always trying to make it a generalized principle and I could never see where he was going with it. But ultimately the framework itself, as it came out, you know, I had a lot of product applications, a lot of process applications, but I didn't have uh, insurance and banking and medical. There's a whole bunch of new things that kind of came up as Clay tried to make it more of a generalized theory, which I think helped it a lot. Right. So for, for those who haven't got on that, uh, Clay is Clayton Christensen, yep. uh, is someone you've worked with, is a yep. second uh, mentor you had. Yes. Uh, and you worked extensively on Job To Be Done. He wrote a lot of oh, great yeah. books. So Clay and I met in 93, and we had almost uh, 27 years of four hours a quarter just to talk. And I kept thinking every week, every time I'd go, he'd be like, yeah, yeah, that's enough. But he always kept coming back. And I, I asked him one time, I'm like, why do you, why do you let me come back? He goes, I don't let you come back. You're a, you're a gift because you ask me questions that nobody else will ask me. And it helps me see the world in a very different way. And so what I, I, I value is your ability to just ask me what would most people would consider the stupid questions, but it's the questions I don't get asked that usually need to be answered first. Beautiful. So let me try to shoot one of these questions to you that no one asked you regarding job to be done. So the main, yeah. let's say one of the main topics you explored with, with uh, Clay, uh, what, what do you think, uh, what would you write differently today or what would you folks uh, do? Yeah. Really differently today if you were to, you know, write the book again. Yeah. So what's, what's so interesting is I, I I've been thinking about this hard is it's, it's, I have very few regrets because Each regret causes me to learn something new. And if I actually pull that regret out at that point in time, it actually destroys to me the matrix of how I got where I am. And so I don't know if I pull something out and say what it is. It's like what, I, what I'll tell you is that as the, the books that I have, what I've realized is that I need, I think there's a lot of books around Clay. I think there's not a lot of books around uh, Willie Moore and, and Dr. Uh, Dr. Taguchi. And so I feel like sharing their stories is way more 
like I tried to share everybody balance in this one, but I feel like I need to go deeper on prototyping to learn and the systems part and Willie's empathetic perspective part. I think those are all really, really from, from a technical perspective of knowing how to look at energy in the, in the supply side space and ultimately how to understand how things work. And so I think those are all very useful tools that I, I, as I wrote the book, I probably have five times more material that got into the, into learning to build. And so now I'm kind of parsing it out to say, all right, let, let me make sure I can articulate the five. Now I feel like there's a book under each one of the five. <laughs> you should definitely write them or talk to, talk, uh, put them on the notes and, and then someone yes. will turn them. So I'm, I'm, I'm working on them hard. I've, I've got a book that, um, you know, I've, I've written books in areas where I, I, I it's kind of like the, I'm letting struggling moments in people's lives determine where I basically go write books. So like I wrote a book on sales. What kind of engineer writes a book on sales? Well, at some point in time, when I when I did my startups and I've worked in in startups, the, the, the hardest of all the positions and the and the skills is sales. And so I just brought a jobs to be done mindset to sales because at some point sales never felt icky to me because all I was doing is helping people. And so it's really written. It's called Demand Side Sales One on One, and it's really about just helping people understand like how to make progress and how to help others make progress and to realize you know a teacher you know, is, is literally selling a student a, a lesson plan because at some point the student has to do the work, not the teacher. And a patient gets sold a, a rehab program from the nurse or the medical professionals. It's the same thing. Everybody's selling, but we don't like the word sales. So why don't we help people make progress? And all of a sudden you realize like, this is actually a fun job. And so part of this is to realize, to, to reframe sales from that perspective. It, I, it's, it's kind of amazing, like how simplified it has made things but how many people have had very very uh, been very successful with it it's a very i think uh, uh intuitive job i have a huge respect for sales because i'm i'm such a bad salesperson yeah it feels me to me that it's very uh, intuitive today but it needs uh it would be definitely benefit from being more rationalized in a way well like job to be done. i think i think part of it is is we were as engineers we were told a lie that lie of build it and they will come it's just lie. It's just like it, it, like it might happen for some people, but for the most part, it doesn't happen. And so you have to actually understand how do you help peop, people. So I have like uh, I have four children. I, I help a tech stars and Y Combinator, and everyone's coming to me asking me like, "Oh, I got this idea. I should do this." And my first question is always like, "Tell me who you're going to help, and do you respect and love to want to help them?" Because at some point in time, you need to love the problem you're solving more than the solution. And if you get obsessed with the problem, I can almost guarantee you'll be successful. But if you get obsessed with the solution, you'll almost guarantee you fail. And do you need to be obsessed with the ICP, with the person you're trying to, the, the, I to think help? You need to, be, uh, you need to be not just the ICP, but, the, but the, the, the struggling moments that they have and the progress they're trying to make. So it's not just the, right. the ideal customer profile. It's, it's, it's the notion of who's in what situation and what are they trying to do and what can't they do now and what are they reaching for? That's the key. Yeah. That's, that's definitely a great one. And I think it's also, you know, sticking on the problem is just the best way then to iterate around it and eventually get yeah. somewhere. And I think people underestimate the time it takes to get to somewhere, right? So this is where I would say when I grew up or when I was in the grind, I'll say in my 20s and 30s, I felt like the solution was the way. Like just build a solution and you have to iterate and then convince everybody else that this is the solution. And, and to be honest, especially hating sales, I realized like I'm bad at selling. I know this is the best solution. I don't know how to get it to them. I, and you, see, you, you start to realize like it, there's always trade-offs. And that's the thing is that we have to be able to understand that we're not the ones usually making the trade-offs. Somebody else is. And we need to understand how they're making those trade-offs. 
that's that's one of the things that Taguchi was phenomenal at. It's so just to reframe my question on job to be done, then yeah. if you if you were not to change something drastically, I guess the world has changed, right? Or your perspective yeah. has evolved and is is a lot more rounded today. Is there some things that like do you think there are some drastic change that happen in the world that you know force basically this framework to be applied differently? I, I think to be honest, it's it people have been just running out of uh, demographic and and psychographic and persona type low hanging fruit. I mean, there, there's there's clearly value in doing those things and and targeting that way, but now it's getting more and more complicated because at some point people are getting more and more information in more and more peaceful form, and so it's not just about who they are; it's about when, where, and why. And so that's mm -hmm. really what I think has evolved. And and if you think about both AI and the And the flipping of basically the the employment space, going from you know everybody working at offices to now everybody working at home, and now there's hybrid, and now there's side gigs, and there's like there's many ways for people to kind of do do this work. You start to realize like there's a lot of opportunity for people to do different things very differently. And I think it's the experiences where I think most people are focused on the product and trying to make the product right, and I'm trying to make the experience right. And so, what does the product have to do to make this experience right? That's the key. Understood. So, so are you saying that the the principles are mostly transferable across you know the industries you worked at and so on? Yes. But then basically, it's yeah, yeah. So, so, so even even a banking app has to have an experience, and people will switch because the experience is too clunky or too slow. And so you have to realize that, that at some point we could have all the features, but if it doesn't flow, if it doesn't feel natural, if it doesn't actually feel where, like what to do next, those are the kinds of things that create friction that enable people to go like, yeah, this is just too hard. Interesting. So to me, it's so the experience. It's not just the feet. Most people talk about the features. I want to know what are the features, what are the outcomes that the features are going to enable them to do that they can't do today? That's a valuable feature. Most features we're adding are features because we can add it, and there might be one or two people doing it, needing it, but most people aren't going to use it. That's not a feature I'd be building. Yeah, it's not the right focus for sure. But then you, you talk about friction, you talk about features, which sounds like you know the solution and, and, and yeah. how to make people appeal to, to the solution you're building. So one of the things you, you, you worked on are these job-to-be-done forces, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. And how to, how to manage people from like, like how basically to push people toward a new solution. Are we, are we maybe getting a bit more lazy these days and other forces maybe working slightly differently or maybe you need, we need more yeah. forces maybe to, so, to push so this is, this is where it gets, this is where it gets, it gets kind of deep because you have to realize that people talk in like three different modes, right? They talk first in a pablum mode where they, they're going to tell you enough, but just enough that you kind of understand, but you really have no idea what they're talking about. Oh, that was amazing. Like, what does that mean? <laughs> right? Or that mm -hmm. was really good. And so if you don't ask, you don't unpack. But then what happens is this next layer is what I call the, like the fantasy nightmare layer. This is where they take whatever they mean by amazing and just over-exaggerate the crap out of it to say like, this is what I mean, right? But it's not real. And then you get down to, well, tell me what you did or tell me what you're able to do. And all of a sudden, you start to realize that all of a sudden, it's like that causal layer, the, the actions of what they did and the outcomes that they got from that is where all the language is. So I don't feel like mm -hmm. people have, are lazy. I don't think people are used to digging so deep. This is why the interviews, most people say, oh, I did my job interview in 15, 20 minutes. I'm like, yeah, you missed it all. 
because usually none mm-hmm. of that real causal mechanisms come out. A little bit comes out, but by the end, you need to connect all the dots. And I think that's why they're 45 minutes to an hour, because at some point you've got to be able to connect this happened and this happened and this happened that made them ready to buy this thing. And then they also had this and this outcome because that's what they were hoping for because they couldn't do it. And they had these anxieties. Like this is like when you talk about to somebody about them making a change, it's a big deal for them. There's no such thing as a little change. Understood. But then, okay, <laughs> we're getting very deep now. Uh, maybe we can yeah, just recap. Maybe too, deep, maybe too deep for the for the audience. I apologize. That's yeah. But that's kind of who I am. That, and I love it. Uh, maybe just we can recap the forces very quickly. I'm sure you've yep. you've you've yep. had some so hundreds four, of time. There's four forces that people people have that that basically enable them to make progress. And there's two that are are moving f- towards you or pushing you towards progress, and two that are basically hindering you from progress. Friction. So there's a push of the situation. The push of the situation has nothing to do with you know what you want to do. Has nothing to do with basically the solution. It has everything to do with why your current solution doesn't work. And typically it's because of some contextual change of this started to wear out, you moved, this something happened, but it's like ultimately it creates the space in the brain for a solution to fall into, right? And then what happens is you start to see solutions. And ultimately when you see solutions, you say, oh, it has that feature. That means I can do this. And so ultimately we want to know the pull forces, which are the outcomes that they want, not the features they want, but the outcomes. What, are they, what, what can't they do today or do they want to do that they can't do today, right? And so, and most people think about it as just pain and gain, but it's way more than pain and gain. It's way more than that. So it's, it's, it's the contextual variables that might not be negative, but make you ready to basically say today's the day I, I need to step it up. So it's not, not anything about pain, right? The, the other two forces are basically the anxiety of the new, which is as you think about the new thing, what are the things that you're afraid of? Or like, what are we going to do with that? Or how do we actually figure this out? Or like, you know, what happens if it breaks down? Who do we call? Like, there's all these questions you have about it. And ultimately, you need to actually answer some of those questions. And the last one is called the habit of the present, which is the things you love about the current solution that you're just kind of afraid to give up. And what you start mm-hmm. to realize is the push and pull have to be greater than the habit, uh, the anxiety and the habit. And so ultimately, it's like, and so we study people who actually switched because they, they demonstrate the threshold by which people will change. If I talk to people who didn't switch but who are shopping, I can't get to ultimately those trade-offs that they had to make. And so ultimately, we start with by interviewing people who already bought our product or bought the competitor's product to us and understand what was going on that caused them to say today's the day. Right. And so that's why you were so, so focused about the problems. It's because unless there is a problem, a really tough problem people want to solve, Yep. The whole forces, like the three other forces may basically never come into play, right? That's right. That's right. The other thing is, is we, a lot of times we assume, like if we do this in a conference room and we do it rationally, we assume symmetry. If they say, oh my God, it's just so slow, then the, the symmetry would say the, the pull should be, we want it to be fast. But the, the pull mm-hmm. really is I want to do more, which is very different than just fast. And so you start to realize like at some point, this is why you have to listen so closely to understand that most of the consumers' things are actually asymmetri- asymmetri- yeah, as- asymmetrical. And ultimately, we have to be able to understand the patterns of what pushes and pulls go together and, and, and figure out the jaggedness of it. And I think this is where you're doing a phenomenal job. It's to translate these kind of abstract and complex frameworks into something very, very tangible. You have lots of great examples. I think probably the, the one you have that I... I love the most is the one with the sneaker and the yeah. uh, Milky Way. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's, it's pretty, it's, do you want me to tell a little bit of it or? Yeah, please do. Yeah. 
So think think of Snickers, right, and Milky Way, which are two two. If you look at the supply side, they're two candy bars, and for all practical purposes, they are sold in the same place. They're, Thanks for listening uh, to this episode of the Six Stage. The, the best way to support us is by leaving a five star review. That from, the from team is pushing hard to bring you the best compete. stories and insights, if you actually and your feedback helps others Snickers, discover our podcast what was in their consideration too. So please, if you haven't done it, apple, take a moment to leave us a review. This means a lot. Until the next episode. Take care. And if you talk to people who had a Milky Way recently, you'd say, "All right, what else was in the consideration? It was, it was a piece of a brownie, a piece of cake, some ice cream, a wine, and a run." And you start to realize, like in the consumer's mind, they don't compete at all. And so the things we had to do was we made Snickers actually more about kind of uh, hungry. You're you missed the last meal. You're hungry. Your stomach's growling. You're not performing to your best, and you still have work to do. And it's like all you really want to do is most people are eating it to get back to them. And so ultimately, we changed the the layering and the and the, the the formulation of it, but also they changed the advertising of it to basically run the Betty White commercial, which which basically had somebody playing football and not themselves. They had a Snickers bar and they became back to themselves, and it went from about six hundred million to about three billion in, in retail sales. That is that is insane. So are you like are you saying that this work was intentional from the beginning for for the company behind uh, these yes. um, chocolate bars? Or yep. was it just a stumble on, on this kind of uh, discovery, was, and then they? It was. It was mostly set up because of you know they were having they were having some troubles, and they they asked for some help. So it was more us kind of it was a project that that they asked us to help on. Right. That that is fascinating to me when you realize that the world you you live in was actually uh, crafted intentionally by uh, yeah a lot of uh, very well. The hard part people. is I went from the week before I was working on the Patriot missile guidance system, and the next week I was then working on Snickers. I'm like, okay, well, this is just too. And to be honest. The Snickers bar was way more complicated to work on than the than the guidance. The guidance system was actually it was lots of things, but it wasn't that complicated. Where the Snickers was very complicated because there weren't many things and there was a lot of things going on. So it was very it was a very interesting problem. Such a such a fascinating one. One question I meant to ask you for a while is how do you suggest in which order do you suggest companies to explore these forces? Because that's not something I've really seen before yeah. in the writing. Well, so I, I've seen it used in in primarily three, you know, starting three different starting points. So one starting point is is if I'm a founder and I and I know what I want to build and and I'm really not I, I say I'm looking for input, but I have a vision of what it is. I tell founders there to go build it and then let people start to use it, and then we start to interview them. Because at some point in time, it's the, the the friction of trying to overcome the founder's vision of what it is is so great that they will distort what the customer is saying to fit their paradigm. But if they actually start to get negative feedback from it, they'll then start to go like, all right, what's wrong? And they'll start to hear what customers have to say. I work a lot with, with uh, you know, I'll say repeat founders. And those those are typically the ones where we start first and we, we go find a struggling moment, a very specific problem. We might have a notion of the supply side, but it's very loose. But the problem we will go find and then we'll do that first. And then we'll basically build prototypes around that. And so that's typically with either really seasoned founders or second time founders. Um, it's like the, the like Intercom was that way where they had done some other things and we'd talk with them. But then when they built Intercom, it was like, oh, you need to come in and help us do this. And so we did that pretty they built they actually they built their vision and then they had us come in afterwards because they had churn. And so that's the third thing is where all of a sudden you get to a certain point 
And this is really the intercom one where they basically got to a certain point. They were growing, but they weren't growing as fast as they wanted to. And they had some churn and they were like, can you come look at the churn of what's causing people to quit? And ultimately we could, we got two sets of stories. Why do people come and why do people leave that then gave us enough insights to know how to break intercom into four products. Right. Are you able to speak uh, more about the intercom uh, story or, or is it more, uh, yeah, no, like, we can, uh, we can, we can tell does, does is very open to allowing us to talk about it. And he's my favorite is I think they tie, they had such tight confidentiality, confidentiality on everything. I felt like they were in the contract that somewhere like, if you do break any of these rules, we'll take your firstborn child. And there were days I'm like, <laughs> I wish you would, but he's grown and they're all good. So, but, uh, but they, they, they've turned around and really kind of been a big proponent and sharing kind of how, inter, how, uh, jobs we've done has helped intercom and how they use it and where they use it. There's a lot, I've been on their podcast three or four times. They use it a lot. Amazing. So could you, could you share maybe one of the things that changed in the tagline or the positioning or yeah. the, the way so you're explaining the, the problem? They, they, they initially started out with the whole notion of, of the struggling moment they were going after was all your data in one place. It turns out when you start a startup, you have at the time, this is 2010, you had all these disparate pieces of software and none of them actually integrated back into each other. And so they started to build some APIs and then they, they went back and forth and they started to realize like, why don't we just build a very simple version, almost like Basecamp version of like all these different tools, email and chat and, but all your data in one place. And so that's how they sold it. That's how it looked. And it basically said, you know, from cradle to grave, we have all your customer information and you, it'll help you prioritize faster and help you scale. And they got to a point where the year one, they got about three and a half million by year two, they got to 5 million, but they were like to the point where the churn was pretty high. And they're trying to go like, all right, we need to, you know, I need to understand the jobs, why they're doing. So Des calls me, uh, Owen and Des, Owen, what both Owen does uh, with the co-founders. And they brought in uh, Paul Adams and Sean Townsend and Matt Hodges, right? Matt. Matt, yep. And so all, and I think their first day was here in our office doing these interviews. We ended up doing 15 interviews around basically people who bought. We, we parameterized them. We basically get down to what are the, the, the key jobs. And it turns out there were four really different jobs. You know, one was help me, help me convert, help me uh, uh, on board, help me learn. And uh, help me uh, help me support. And what we realized is that different areas in the company were buying it, but nobody was buying it twice in any one company. And so they end up taking that one product and almost dividing into three product or four products. And so it made it a platform. And they just turned features off that weren't relevant to that kind of job to be done. And it allowed them to grow from uh, about five million to seventy five million in about eighteen months. And, and with it, and with it, they started to basically market differently, as Matt talks about, where they they didn't talk about the solution. They talked about problem aware and getting people where they were problem aware. Is like people are coming, but I don't know how to convert. They weren't asking for a CRM. They weren't at. They didn't know the solution. So it was actually being very very clear about kind of the problem they were solving, and then the outcomes people wanted. So then they would tell them about the product. And I think it was the combination of their positioning and the notion of how to divide that product up that really turned that, turned that into a big success. Yeah, it's wonderful. I think Intercom is such a great example of a company where the job to be done, you have uncovered, perfectly, almost perfectly aligns with the names yeah. of the feature. If you, I think yeah, yeah. today, even it's very Google rare, Intercom, by the way. again, it's very rare. It's very rare to have the like that the, to have it simplified down to that that one phrase. But they, the the one thing I always tell people is never name the jobs for ninety days because you you end up 
they end up kind of filling in and you asking, well, what's job one again? What's job two? You end up using words and it's the words that you want to make sure that you're you're using are the they're 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 part of the consumer language, not part of like the right. The, the, the marketing language. And so ultimately you want to name them about what people actually. So my belief is when they say, you know, help me, help me uh, uh, fix support is like, that's, that's the words they used. Like we could, we literally looked at it and go like, why would somebody use this to fix support? <laughs> right. <laughs> but yet uh, eventually we realized it was a very useful tool because of the, the inbox uh, situation. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a very unique uh, case. And I think you guys did a, a tremendous job. We tried at June, uh, these keywords, activate, retain. People yeah. didn't understand them at all. <laughs> That's right. So, That's why you got to talk to customers. And, and though you can look at it and say, oh, yeah, this is exactly what we're doing. If they don't think about it, there's a big leap between what they're thinking and what you're trying to get them to do, and they'll never see it. And so this is why these interviews are so important. And I think this is... Uh, it's a, it's a very tough exercise to run. I think a lot of people get lost trying to run these interviews, right? So um, I don't know. Do you have an advice on running job-to-be-done interviews in a lean so my, my uh, one, way? My, so there's, there's three things. One is this is a conversation, right? But it's run like it's an interrogation. This is where you have to read Chris's Voss's book because you got to learn. You're going to ask questions where you don't want to get the answer yes. You want to get the answer no. Because no means they're going to tell you a lot more, right? The second part mm -hmm. is you should have no questions. You should have no list of questions at all. Like this is literally go in almost with an empty mind to say like, I have no idea why they did this. None. You have to start with a beginner's mind. It's like very Zen. This is part of the stuff I learned from Taguchi. Just pretend you don't know anything. This is like, I always think of jobs as hypothesis building research. Right. As opposed to hypothesis proving research where most people have a set of questions and they're trying to prove a hypothesis they already have. Again, I'm not smart enough to know what it is. So I'm trying to do this research before I have hypotheses and I come out with way more hypotheses that are way closer to the truth than what most people do. I think the last I think the 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 last thing is is to is to really again it's a little bit of the emptying of the brain but it's it's the other part is to have a partner i have so many people who try to do these interviews by themselves and they're so hard to actually do by yourself because at some point when you debrief it and extract you need to listen to it again you need to do some other things and so you start to realize like it's a very it's like a lot of data in a very small period of time and you've got to be able to pick and understand the intent so this is not about what they said it's what they meant and so this is why you have to spend the time to actually unpack because a lot of times they can't tell you what it is, but they can tell you what it's not. So they'll say they that want it easy, right? And they'll say, oh, it's just got to be easier. And like, well, what does that mean? It's like, I, I don't know. It's like, well, tell me what hard is. And they'll say, so many steps. I got so much to remember. I've got like, they, they can tell you that language. And so part of it is to realize you have to be able to play in that conversation so they can articulate. Very nice. And I guess then similar to the Toyota example that we mentioned with peeling the yeah. problems you also need to try to zoom in or zoom out right on this problem that's right that's right so so the the real thing somebody somebody had brought it up last week i was talking to somebody and they're like i think of the job as like the time horizon by which people would say i'm i'm do working on this so like if they're trying to get a new job right it's not only the resume it's not only the interview it's all the way to get it and negotiating the job like all of those things fall into the job to be done which is help me find a new place to work so mm -hmm. the other ones are components 
right? That have to be put in place in order to help people make that progress. But but they're not there just to update the resume. There's a reason for it. So think of the the the, the resume is an out- output, but the outcome is to get a new job or, or right. to negotiate a better position. And so part of this is to realize like we we need to dig past why people say, oh God, I need a new job. Like why? Right? This is this is it. And and what I've done, I've just I'm in the midst of writing a book right now. It's called uh, Job Moves, and it's it's really about helping people understand how when they're when they when they're in a position and they don't want their boss's job, what the heck do you do? <laughs> you start to realize, like, do I am I done? Do I go find something else? How to, like and and fi- trying to find work is a is a full time job. And so you start to realize, like, how do we actually help people understand where they want to go and why does this job work or not work? And you start to realize, though, people. Like so, I've done over a thousand people, and what you find is 500 people. I can get basically find a new job, 480 or something, found a new job. 520 kept their old position or found a new position in the in their old company because they were able to articulate what they really wanted to do, and they didn't actually have to move, but they just finally understood what they wanted. But what I don't understand is how can you still uncover jobs to be done every basically every week or every month if the problems that we have don't change that often, right? Like people have been looking for a healthy life and money has, you know, is a way to to get some wealth or get a well-balanced life. And so having a job has kind of always been one way of doing that. So how is it possible that if the jobs are the same, things are constantly changing for you and for, you know, people doing research? So so this is where technology comes into play to actually make the job more and more attainable. So think of think of Netflix. Netflix started as like if you can't get the blockbuster, you're out in the rural areas. We'll we'll ship you your movies, and we'll charge you no late fee. And then it was like, no, you know what? You can actually just go online and dial in. Though it buffers, it's better than nothing. And then ultimately, over time, as that technology got better, all of a sudden they actually stole it right on right from underneath. Blockbuster, because at some point Blockbuster had a bad business model and they were too afraid of doing something that didn't work 100%. So part of this is to realize that that in most cases, when you're disrupting, you're doing something that's better than nothing. And Netflix was just better than nothing because they didn't have anything else, right? And so ultimately, that right. that's where, again, that, that kind of comes from. And so part of this is to realize that technology is going to actually make it better, faster, cheaper, which gives more and more access. But the, the underlying problems are are... are happening over and over and over again. It's just now that we have new technology, it allows us to get them done either better, faster, or cheaper. And now and now where it wasn't, a, think of it as, as a year ago, I couldn't do it, but now with AI, I can do it, right. right? I had the same job, I had the same struggling moment, I couldn't really get it done, but now that I have AI, like there's a, I'm willing to spend this much money to go start doing some, quote, marketing copy. But otherwise, right. I would have had to go get an agency and a brief and a whole bunch of other, you start to realize like, it's like AI has literally helped me get started in certain things. And so Netflix is a pretty successful company, right? And you said they were solving a problem that wasn't solved. For entrepreneurs listening, does it mean that going after a non-solved problem is usually a bigger opportunity or not? So, so what I would say is there are problems that aren't necessarily, are not necessarily unsolved. In some cases, they go tolerated. People just become tolerant to the struggling moment. And so this is where there's lots of opportunity where all of a sudden it's like, oh my gosh, why, like, why have I been doing this all along? And you start to realize like, there's lots of different products that you start to realize that eventually the, the struggling moments gets big enough that, that, that then people take care of it or do something with it. Right. Very interesting. Yeah. Struggling moments. We can talk about this one for hours, but yes. I guess, I guess one question I have for you on struggling moments is the timing. 
So yeah. do so there are some businesses that solve some real moment, real problems, let's yeah. say. But it sounds like the timing is a bit off, and so they never yeah. really manage to build a solution yeah. around that. So a really good example yeah. I like is you know this concierge uh, to actually keep your keys in ca- in case you lose them. Yeah, never take them because you don't want to buy these services in case you lose your key, right? So you basically right. you uh, had to lose your keys. Exactly, <laughs> you bet on losing your keys, right? And so sometimes the problems are here, just there is something wrong about timing. Have you have you thought about this one, maybe? Yeah, I think I think timing is really, really. It's like being able to get in their space and time. So, for example, I have a very good friend from Romania, Transylvania, Moby Scroll. I see him, but I can't come up with his name. I'm so embarrassed. You'll know. I'll have it by the end. But ultimately, they they build kind of uh, mobile plugins for basically app developers. And what's interesting is that in the very beginning, we would literally have people who wanted to buy it look at it. And they'd look at it and they'd say, oh, God, I could do so much better. Oh, yeah, I'll never buy this. Oh, yeah, it's never going to happen. Like, and, and you just got people ri- ripping on it right and left. But what would happen is the project would get closer and closer to finish. They'd finish these other things, but they didn't finish the calendar part. They didn't finish this other part. And so what they do, they go, they convince themselves, say, oh, you know, we'll just buy this part. We'll plug it in and we'll come back to it later. But they'd never come back to it. And it, to be honest, when he made it more sophisticated, people bought less because it was just about to be a like a half step to basically get them there. And to be honest, once they put it in, they never take it out. And so it's him knowing that it's not about what they want when they're in passive looking or even active looking. It's the moment where they have the choice and that pressure that makes it a you know a multi million dollar you know software company selling in the moments where people need it the most. And I think timing is very, very crucial to understand. And his business didn't take off until he knew that timing. That's, again, another fascinating point. So that's something I also wanted to touch on. So we talk about the, the frameworks and the, and the techniques to uncover the jobs. And then eventually you land on a website, let's say, or you see an advertising in the street, or you go into a shop. And this is where you know, things get real. What's, what's happening here? Like, in which order are the forces applying? Like, is it... What, what I'm trying to get you, I think, is like, are we first rational? Are we, are we driven by our rational? Are we more emotional people and we're first and foremost driven by our emotions? And then the rational kicks in. So this is where I feel like science has led me awry because at some point uh, being scientific and being rational is that I can actually see something that everybody else can see the same way and that we can all agree that this is what happened, Right. At the same time, what you start to realize is most consumer purchases have an irrational component to it. And it it gets back to the moment of, like, I would never buy this product unless I'm in this moment, <laughs> right? And, and then you say, like, so this is where, where most, this is why I don't like demographics and psychographic, because it tells me how people behave on, on average or in general. But when people actually do something new, it's usually never in, in like, it's never predicted. Right, it's the fact that things come together to do that. And so ultimately, I feel like the the demographics and psychographics have explained things for a while, but it's not just the who anymore. It's the who, when, where, and why that helps you determine what, how, and how much. And so we end up talking them more about who they are and what they want, and they don't even know it's possible. It's the when, where, and why that are the critical parts that actually are are almost universal that I can literally see across demographics that actually help me understand how to build the product. Interesting. So it's basically less important to know that I'm a 
a white male in the 30s living in Europe at the moment than yeah. to understand But my belief is that that this is where somebody would say, oh, yeah. And and they thought, oh, this is what a boomer does. And this is what a millennial does. And we actually got millennials doing what boomers do and boomers doing what millennials do. And it's like, how is this demographic? They're both in this situation. They want these outcomes. They want this. How are they different? And it turns out you might have different language, but they all have the same mechanisms of why they're buying. And so ultimately, we might have to speak to them a little differently because of their, their culture differences. But the reality is the underlying mechanism is exactly the same. Right. So what, is a, does, what does a profile customer looks like in Bob Mista notes? Yeah, it's, uh, it's almost like a window. It's a window of different dimensions. It's a window of when. Like when is the time when people are struggling with these things? It's, it's the underlying why, right? Is it, it, so for example, I just did this thing on job change, right? Are you, are you leaving because you mess, met, met a, a milestone or are you leaving because you're, you're basically disrespected or that you don't trust them? Very different things. Mm-hmm. And so part of this is being able to understand the, the, the dimensions of context that actually make them ready to even look because without these things happening to them, there's no space in their brain for anything to fall into. And so that to me is, is the first premise here is, is if I'm trying to get people, if I know the struggling moment, how do I actually induce the struggling moment or make people aware of the struggling moment more than they can, right? So like there's a new Apple commercial out where it's a, it's a plug singing to an iPhone, right? Like, I miss you. Where have you been? How come you're... The, and it's, it's literally the, one of the best ways to talk about it. if you have an energy problem and your battery problem, like the, the 15 is going to beat it. And it's taking it from the notion of like, uh, I'm missing the, the, the phone that used to be plugged into me all day. And it's one of these things that's like, it's a very, really creative way of, of bringing up a struggling moment to say it's time to buy a new phone. Wow. Yeah, it's very smart. Wow. Yeah, because my, my next question is going to be, if that's the way you profile potential customers, then yes. how do you go find them with this information? Yeah. Like, it's very hard to target, let's say, on the internet, people that have so, this timing right or have yeah, this yeah, yeah. problem. So it, it's it, impossible. It, well, so let's start with in B. Let's start in B two B. B two B is actually easier to talk about this because you've got a discovery call. So, like at Auto AutoBooks is a company I've been helping for over five years and helping them in the sales with demand side sales. And, and one of the things we realized is like at some point in time, though we might have 60 leads per sales rep, how many, how many leads are really actively doing anything about it? Because they think of TAM as anybody who's available to basically buy our product. And the reality is like, mm-hmm. if you're not struggling, you're not going to buy the product. So we're able to actually get people to understand and, and, and do a discovery call that helped us understand where they were at and their buying timeline to then help understand what are the pressures they have going on. And because we did the interviews, we can literally say, is it more this or more that? And ultimately it falls into one or three buckets, one or three patterns that we found from the interviews we did. And so part of this is being able to ask people about where they're at. And so this is one of those things where we're really trying to take the time to, to understand, like as people come in, why are you doing, if you're willing to tell us why you're doing this, we can actually help you choose better. That's the proposition that we're working. Right. And this is kind of inbound sales, but when you need to outreach, when yes. you need to see for people, so outbound sales or marketing or content marketing. I mean, when you're Apple, you can afford this huge, uh, you know, ads in the street and yep. 
It's a lot of people, so but this is where this is where I like uh, I like April Dumford stuff. I like their Sullentrope and and who's a partner? I can't remember. The other guy was Levi Levi from uh, Mulby Scroll. That's his name. I, I finally remembered. I want to make sure I said it at least once. Uh, but Clara Gia, right? The, the, they're they're also doing and and Joanna Weeb and everybody else is doing. They're actually talking about the copy at the moment of hitting people with the right copy at the moment of struggle. And so mm-hmm. ultimately, when you're doing direct, it's about. So for example. I used to advertise building homes. I used to advertise in the in the obituaries because I found out that most people who downsized looked at the obituaries almost every day, and and when they did, they were also thinking about moving because I heard it in the stories. And so I, when I did that, I actually got a seventy percent bump in my traffic, and I got a I got a thirty percent savings in my because nobody wanted to advertise in the obituaries. And so finding the right messages to give and when when and where to give those messages and dividing the timeline up is really really important to helping you kind of get that marketing right. And Claire, Gia, April, uh, Joanna, they're all like experts and they know jobs very well. You answered the, the, the question perfectly. Awesome. In the beginning, you, we touched a little bit on, on two of your mentors. Yeah. Uh, it's quite fascinating when we hear you, to see the, 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 you know, the, the importance that they have. And as you said, they were not initially mentors. They kind of eventually became mentors and they were people we worked yeah. with. It's something very striking with kind of my generation of entrepreneurs is that they rarely have mentors or they rarely call out people as being their mentors. Do you think it's something that just comes later on eventually? Is it something that is kind of not very common? It's a really good topic. It's, it's to be honest, it's one of those things I want to go do interviews around. Like, when do you really realize this person's a mentor? And when did you, mm-hmm. like, it, how far did the relationship have to go before it became a mentor? And then there was a very clear moment where Claire, Clay basically said, we're, we're not, you know, there's no mentor mentee, we're peers. And so we helped each other. And that's when the jobs we done theory kind of took off as when I, when it went from being a teacher to a mentor, to a, to a peer. And to be honest, when I'm trying to find mentees, I'm trying to find people who think deep enough that literally will help me get to the next level. So like Ryan, Ryan Singer is a peer of mine, but I would say that early in the day I, I, I was, I mentored him just to see if he had the, the, the will and the rigor and the curiosity to, to kind of match. And I found somebody who has probably more than I had bargained for. Right. <laughs> but we've become very, very good friends. And, you know, we, 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 we spend as much time as we can together and, and we help each other get better because we're peers. Yeah. So yeah, I get this uh, flat relationship. I mean, equal, equal to equal relationship. I think is very important. Sounds very important. Like it's a two way well, relationship. Basically, I, I wrote a paper uh, on uh, HB, uh, HB, Harvard Business Review around getting the mentoring equation right. And it's this notion of that the mentor starts here, the mentee starts here. And over time, they get closer and closer. And as you get close, the mentee ends up disre- disrespecting the mentor at some point in time. And that usually blows up. And so when you get close enough, you have to actually make the choice to say like, like we're peers. And then the relationship starts to go up like this, right? And you start to realize that at some point it's like, it's like, like the mentors try to find somebody to, to collaborate with. And ultimately I want to be able to go here. And the mentee is just trying to get past. And so this is where trying to set up the right expectations and understand, I think is really important. I've thought way that too is- hard about it. Let's put it that way. I don't have, and I don't have an answer. <laughs> I love it. Another person you're close to is, and now I'll try to find a, an argument where basically you, you, you're you not aligned with uh, some people you, you, you yeah. work with and, and have a great relationship with, which yeah. is J- Jason uh, Fried. Yep. He, he wrote this, uh, this chapter called Learnings from Failures is Overrated. 
And yes. clearly, when you look at your writings, you 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 basically are one of those person that think that the great innovators are obsessed with failing and and learning, right? So, so, so this is what Jason what, and I actually talked. Jason and I talked about. This. I actually don't think that real innovators and entrepreneurs think about failing at all. I think right. it's everybody yeah. else who are who are judging them when, like. The whole aspect is, is like when I see something fail, I'm like, oh my God, what happened? Like, all right, what, like I get excited and try to understand like, what did I, what should I be learning out of this to basically bring back to the design? I want it to fail early, but it's more about, I want to learn about it where to me, the only people who look at it and say you're failing are the people on the outside pointing and looking at you around your plan. And Jason talks about this all the time, but you plan when you're the stupidest and it's just a guess. And that's why like, I really like the notion of when we're doing product development, these are bets. These are more about bets and, and resources and what better we're willing to make as opposed to plan. Plans are with systems that are known and predictable and, and have worked. But if we've never done it before, it's a bet. So we got we to gotta, right. like, call a spade a spade. And that's Jason has a very good angle on that. And he's, he's given me lots of language as well. Right. Yeah, he's, he's, he's known for that too. But I, your kind of take is that it needs... It requires iterations most of the time to get somewhere, right? And these yeah. iterations, whether you call them failures or something else, yeah. um, are kind of the path to getting somewhere. Where I think what yeah. Jason Fritz tend to say is like, if you put some thinking up front, if you're shaping things, you can avoid a lot of these mistakes, right? And 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 also he's saying what you said about uh, this is, estimation. This is the, yeah. So this right. is kind of the point: is that I need to actually prototype in the virtual world as much as I need a prototype in the physical world. And so what happens is shaping is actually a form of prototyping. What if I don't do this? What if I add this? What if I don't do this? Is this really about this? Can I, where's mm. the risks? How do I hammer scope the risk out? It's all, shaping is all about prototyping. So it's the same kind of thing. And, and it's about learning and comparing and contrasting. I would say, you know, con contrast creates meaning. I need to have, I can't just give me one thing and say, what do you think? You got to give me two things because I need a reference point to basically tell you what, like how things lay out. And, and one thing is just impossible for like, anytime get somebody gives you one thing, what do you like it or not? I'm like, I can't answer that because I don't know what the reference point is. Right. Right. Okay. So it can be our concept, but slightly different. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so so I, I do think like J that Jason and I are actually talking about the same things. I think Jason's talking about how do we iterate more in the, in the analytical or conceptual world and look broader, faster, so we can see possibilities as opposed to wait for problems to come up and just try to solve problems, right? Right. And so the thing I learned when I worked in Japan was the fact is that they would actually build a set of prototypes and figure out where it would break, where in, in here in the US, I would make something and then I would just wait for it to break, <laughs> right? And so the difference is, is that as I would wait for it to break, it would become later in the line. And then all of a sudden I'd have to make changes that were really late and very expensive where in Japan, they'd make and make it fail early so they could learn how to fix it way cheaper than we could actually fix it. So ultimately, their advantage was they could generate technical information way faster and way earlier than we could. Very interesting. Yeah, there is a the, the craft is not the same for everything you produce, right? And software gives a lot of right. freedom to it, I guess. That's right. And, and as an innovator, you have choices. And and to be honest, the, again, you got to remember, there's way more unknown than there is known. And, and what I would tell you is, again, I think of dyslexia as the greatest gift I ever got because I know that I don't know, <laughs> right? Where most people start, they can't even start working till they know. 
you right. built so much on that on that initial weakness. So yeah, for those who didn't know, you were like a, a dyslexic kid. I yeah, guess. I was a dyslexic how- kid. I had three close head brain injuries. I got you know B. I got I, the first thing was could I get a D, and then I'd iterate to get a B or a C, and then I'd iterate one more time to get a B. But ultimately. I was starting before everybody else was starting. Like, like I just had to start to put, the, like, whether it was a paper or whether it's math problems or whatever. It's like, okay, I'm going to just try to do them and do and figure out where I'm wrong, right? Because that's going to help me understand what what process I need to put in place. And so and it was me. I, that's I, my I, method of learning. So what I would tell you is the greatest gift you could give your children, your colleagues, is to literally help them understand how they learn. Right. Like right. when you say the word apple, do you see the word? Do you see a tree? Do you see an apple? Do you see an apple? Like, what do you see and how does it manifest and how do you look things up? And so you start to realize, like, understanding how people learn. My mom taught me when I was like six or seven years old that because at some point when I looked at a paragraph, all I saw was the spaces. And then she'd say, all right, where oh are the God. big words? And I'd say, well, the big spaces. And then we'd circle those big words. And I would, I would work really hard to figure out what those five big words were. And then I would guess why they'd be together because every, if I had to w- read it in a linear way, I w- it would work so hard to find out that next word. I would forget everything prior to that thing. So I wouldn't be able to remember the context wrapped around it. And so it was very, mm. very difficult for me to read. So as my mom literally taught me how to pattern record, which just find the five most, the biggest, five biggest words in the paragraph, circle them and guess why they go together. 30 years, 40 years of doing that. I'm pretty good. <laughs> That is insane. Wow. Yeah, that's definitely something that school doesn't teach you. I feel that there is one way to learn at school. And for me, it was the same. I had an epiphany when I was 20. I realized yeah. that my memory is visual. And now I do everything yeah. visual. Like I can, yeah, yeah, yeah. I could have and to be honest, it's a Yeah. Yeah, for me, I learned yeah, that I have to be moving. As long as I'm moving. Like I take notes, but I can't necessarily read the notes. But I can recall because that I have to have a place, a time, a person, and ultimately something kinesthetic. And those four things, I can almost remember everything identically. But if, I, if I'm if i not doing, if I don't have all four of those, can't do it. That is insane. That is such an interesting topic. Also deserves a book. Yeah. <laughs> Two last questions for you. I could go on forever. Uh, it's such a fascinating discussion. One is about aesthetics. So I'm sure you're familiar with uh, Christopher Alexander's writings. Yes. Right? Very much. And it talks a lot about aesthetics and how it combines with the functional aspects of designing a space. Yeah. So we talked about, you know, how to be iterative and solve people's problems and so on. When you're, when you're an architect like him and you're building a building and you have such an emphasis on aesthetics, it's a very different approach. It's a very different result. What do you think is the role of aesthetics in solving people's problems? Is it part of it? Is it a different equation? I, yeah. So I think, I think, I think aesthetics are the last 10%. Mm. If I look at the difference between in the early days of Apple and Android, Apple was all design, is all aesthetics. They knew they knew how to round things. They knew how they knew what was easier for the eyes. They knew like we're talking about micro behaviors that accumulate. And so what happens is is aesthetic is really about this notion of it feeling like it's one process as opposed to steps in the process. You know what I'm saying? Right. So like, this is like, how do I, how do I walk through this garden? How do I, how do I sit and read? Like, what, what can I see? What can I do? Like, where am I at? And it's, this is this empathetic perspective. That's so critical and being able to understand where, where will be those things? Because you can make aesthetically, make it aesthetically perfect. But the reality is if it doesn't do 
the functional pieces, it's a waste of time. But it can also do the thing functionally, but it, it doesn't have the aesthetics, it might actually not repeat. So aesthetics, are it's, it's a sense of balance and a sense of trade-offs you have to make. And ultimately, I want to know technologically what are the... I want it to be as simple and as easy as possible, but the reality is like as 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 complicated as necessary, which is like if it doesn't work, right? And it's got great aesthetics, no way, but it's got to work and have great aesthetics. Right. But then is, even though it's the 10 last percent, yes. can it drastically impact the perception yes. that people have? I, I believe it does. I believe it does. And, okay. and it's, and it's, and it's, and, and, and I think, I think when you're starting out, so here's the two things. When you're starting out in a disruptive way, meaning you're you're actually serving people who don't have anything, right? The aesthetics is not as important as when you start to get the ramp. So as you ramp, you have to basically then tie that down because you it's going to be about onboarding and getting more and more people on, which means the aesthetics have to be there. You might have to work on the aesthetics in the in the in the startup side, but they have to be in place by the time you're starting to scale. Where I don't mm -hmm. think you need to actually have the aesthetics in place to start. Right. I understand. And I agree. I agree with that. I think also it's, it's very easy to get uh, trapped into the aesthetics for the sake of aesthetics. Well, it's aesthetics a, it's never a, yeah. It's as a, especially as a, like an engineer and a designer, you, you almost feel bipolar on these things. Cause it's like, God, I want to do this, but I can't like, and there, there are things we angst over, but the reality is like us not making a decision makes it worse. Right. And so mm -hmm. one is, the, is, is like, okay, we're going to side on one side or the other. That's the two or the third is okay. What's the right trade-off to make between the two? Hundred percent, right? yeah, 100%. But then, then I'm so fascinated about all these designers or like aesthetics people, you know, that build companies from the ground up. Even if you look at fashion, like most of the creators of fashion companies yes. initially were, you know, designers, right? So there, there is nothing functional there. It's pure aesthetics. No, that's wrong. I think fashion has a lot of function to it. It's just the fact that the differentiation is not the functions. The differentiation okay. is the experience. Ooh, okay. Which is in between right. the so, function. So think, and, so think of it this way. What's the difference between a Rolex and a paddock? The, yeah, the story, right? The right? imagination. The, the story, like they're both really, really, really good, but it's ultimately the story and the way they produce and the, 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 the way you buy and the way that they've got everything set, set up to do. Buying a Rolex is very different than buying a paddock. And you start to realize that, that ultimately it's... And sometimes it's not the product, it's the the experiences wrapped around the product that actually make the difference, right? Mm -hmm. Going to a dealership is the same way. Going to a Toyota dealer, going to a, a Mercedes dealer, going to a Chevy dealer, I mean, very the products are almost identical, <laughs> right? When you really line them up, they're, they're like there's very little difference between some of the vehicles. And you kind of go like, all right, what is it? And it turns out to be service. It turns out to be basically who's who's the person who's going to be there when it breaks, Uh How do they, how much is it really like, what am I giving up to get it? There's a whole bunch of other things. And you start to realize like the sales process has as much impact on pro as product design in the car business. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah, that's a nice way to, to look at it. And actually it's something we, yeah, we barely touch on, but uh, de definitely very, very important. So like my, when my I built, yeah. So like when I built houses, one of the things I did is I found out and had basically somebody tell me exactly when the moving truck was supposed to leave and when they're supposed to get there. And I would literally show up with five pizzas and, and five bottles of pop and make sure everything was okay and say, thank you. I knew they were going to be hungry. I knew when, when they'd bring it. I knew that they were thinking about food. And ultimately, they never really hate I'm not sure they really love pizza, but the notion of like they didn't have time. They were so excited to be in the house that they told everybody 
and they literally helped recruit people to buy my houses because I just brought those pizzas over. Mm. Right. I cared enough to know. And I knew, and I've been through it enough to know like, Oh, all the boxes and everything. Like, you know what, just take a minute and sit down. And I, I would bring a six pack of beer as well. So <laughs> I checked to make sure they were, they were people who drank alcohol or not. But anyway, it, it was just one of those things that was very like, like those are the little things that make a heck of a difference. Yeah. The experience again, that's, that's a great one. Yeah. PMs bring the donuts. You brought the pizza. So exactly. Exactly. That's, that's a good one. Last question for you. So one of the books that changed my life was uh, Clay's book, How Will You Measure Your Life? Yeah. Great book. I recommend it pretty much every month to someone. Yes. What uh, did you have this method when you grew up? Oh, sorry. What did you say? I, I listen to it every year. There's like five books oh. I listen to every year. So it's just it's because you hear it differently every year. I agree. So what? okay. Did you go through that method when you were younger? What would you, uh, which part of it would you advise? The one, you know? the one that hit me the most was the notion of out. You talked about is Rona, return on net assets, and it's this aspect of outsourcing and how do we outsource things. And, and the reality is, is like I at the time that that book came out, I was I had four children that were in elementary school or a little younger, and one of the things I realized is that I'm outsourcing the education of my children to somebody else. And that that's actually the wrong thing for me to do and that I need to take a I need to take a bigger stand and help educating them about the things I believe in and what they need to know because school isn't going to give them everything they need. It was the first time I had thought about like I knew it was a responsibility to educate my children, but I thought sending them to school was the right way. And it turns out they, they're not going to teach hard work. They're not going to teach, you know, they, they don't teach necessarily some of the, the role model stuff that has to be there. And that's where I basically made sure that my kids understood hard work and that they had goals and that they, you know, when they face challenges, that they learn from them. And to be honest, to make sure that they face challenges on a regular basis and not us jumping in to solve them. And I took that all from how we measure life of like, I need my, my responsibility is to figure out, you know, what they love to do, be a good human being, have respect for others and find their passion. Like that, that's all I really can do for them. And so that, that's how I got to that is through that book. That book is a, it's an amazing, amazing book. Wonderful. So basically delegate, but not the most important things in life, right? Or do you think that should be? Or supplement. You might delegate some things, but you're going to make sure that you've got time to do these other things with them to make sure that you, you can actually uh, share things with them that, that you need to create opportunities to share things with them that are very different than just school. I love that. Yeah. Such an interesting take. I completely missed that, that part of the book. So I need to yeah. read it again. Yep. It's very good. Thank you. Thank you so, so much, Bob. We're at the end for coming. Thank you for having me. I, I, I would love any questions you get. My thing is, is uh, make a, make a, a list of them and we can come back on and I can ask, I can answer other questions that, that your audience might have for me. I'd love to do that. That's awesome. If people want to connect with you or follow up uh, with you or just follow you, what's the best platform yeah. these days? The best place is going to be, uh, I'm, I'm doing a little bit more, but uh, LinkedIn is where almost all my stuff kind of lays. I have a YouTube channel. I also have uh, two books on Amazon. Uh, if you just look up Bob Mesta, M-O-E-S-T-A, I'm you're going to come up in one of those three or four channels that's there. I also have a, a small design firm called The Rewired Group. Uh, we, we help people everywhere from startups to big corporations kind of innovate on a case-by-case -case basis. Awesome. I'll make sure to point to the resources you mentioned. Thank you so cool. much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Seed Stage. The best way to support us is by leaving a five-star review. The team is pushing hard to bring you the best stories and insights, and your feedback helps others discover our podcast too. 
So please, if you haven't done it, take a moment to leave us a review. This means a lot. Until the next episode, take care.